Why did the UK and US go from supporting the apartheid regime to sanctioning the apartheid regime in South Africa? And that's because there was a very clear shift in global public opinion. There was a very clear shift in the way people started talking about South Africa. Very clear shift in the way the discourse was shifting, very similar to how it's shifting today with regards to Palestine. Because the outcome belongs to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, not to us. The striving is what belongs to us. It's for us to identify, for you to say to me, Sammy, I like what you said about the boycott, but I've identified one, two, three problems. The economic side comes into it primarily in when you assess why many of the Muslim states in particular have not taken a particularly strong stance with regards to Gaza. And I'll explain what I mean. Assalamu alaikum everyone, I'm Ibrahim Khan. Welcome back to the IFG channel. With me today we have someone who is talking a lot of sense and helping all of the Muslim community understand what is going on right now in the Middle East. We have with us Sami Hamdi, who's the managing director of the International Interest, which is a political risk consultancy. Uh, Sami, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you very much for having me, Ibrahim. Barakallah feek. Um, and Sami, uh, we obviously talk about economics, but obviously economics is linked to politics and spirituality and culture and everything, right? Uh, but what I wanted to talk to you today about, uh, and you've been doing some great work, uh, I think on a number of other channels as well, educating us as Muslims, about what's going on and how should we understand it. Um, and I wanted to pick your brains today on the Gaza, uh, you know, Palestine-Israel uh, conflict and, and give us the economic side of things. Uh, we want, I want you to put on your Sami Hamdi x-ray goggles and just look out across the world and tell us where are the dollars flowing, what's happening, how do we understand this from an economic perspective? First of all, thank you very much for having me and it's worth stating that I'm a huge fan of Islamic finance guru and, and Jazakumullah for the efforts that you guys are doing as well in bringing theory into practicalities and helping to guide the Ummah in one of the most important aspects of the resurrection or revival of the Ummah, if people want to call it that, in terms of its financial capabilities and where it should put its money and develop that monetary autonomy. I think that when it comes to what's happening in Gaza, I think that a lot has been talked about the political dynamics the way that Netanyahu went to the United Nations the week before October 7th when he held up that map in which he had completely erased Palestine, when he described that normalization of ties with Saudi Arabia would be the greatest deal since the end of the Cold War, when the Israeli ambassador was talking about how normalization would mean the complete Arab abandonment of the Palestinians, when Netanyahu sat with the Turkish president Recep Tayyip Erdogan, and then he went back to Tel Aviv and he was convinced the UAE's ambassador to the US, Yusuf Al-Utayba, told the think tank that we have no influence now over the Israelis with regards to Palestine, but we have wonderful number of flights now between Tel Aviv and between Abu Dhabi. So a lot of the focus has been on that political angle in terms of the political nature of Netanyahu's decision to bombard Gaza in order to try to wipe away what he sees as one of the greatest humiliations in allowing the greatest threat to Israel to manifest and turning a blind eye to it. And one of the things worth noting here is that there were huge protests, I think we were recording on the Monday, yesterday in the evening, there were huge protests in Tel Aviv, demanding or putting pressure on Netanyahu, blaming him for what's happening, and the hostage families are blaming him for what's happening. For those who think that it's an exaggeration, the Times of Israel reported last week that Netanyahu and the IDF were frustrated that the Palestinians were releasing hostages, or that Hamas were releasing hostages, because according to the article, it would mean a dampening of the ardor and vigor with which the Israelis are keen on a ground invasion or not. The economic side comes into it primarily in when you assess 
why many of the Muslim states in particular have not taken a particularly strong stance with regards to Gaza. And I'll explain what I mean. I think the easiest way to do it is to put yourself in the position of three leaders. Rajab Tayyip Erdogan of Turkey, Mohammed bin Salman, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, and the UAE's President Mohammed bin Zayed. Erdogan receives news from his advisors that at the G20 summit three months ago, there is an announcement of a Middle East corridor. The Middle East corridor is a corridor that will comprise of India, it will cross a short period of the sea, then it will, a short area of the sea, enter the UAE, then by land go through Saudi Arabia to Jordan, through Israel into Europe. It will revolutionize the economic nature of those countries and revolutionize the trade routes that are currently available for companies. Currently people are shipping, which takes much longer. A land route offers a much quicker alternative and those countries will be receive huge investments for development of infrastructure or the like. Turkey has been trying to position itself alongside somewhat within the framework of the Belt and Road Initiative of China, the idea being passing through Central Asia towards Turkey into Europe. Erdogan realizes that if this Middle East corridor goes through, then Turkey will suffer badly economically because it will no longer be seen as that hub that connects Europe and Asia. People instead will go through Israel, Saudi Arabia or the like. And this is why Erdogan's decision is to turn around and try to pursue warmer ties with the Israelis, to try to find an alternative with the Israelis where they can develop ties and convince the Israelis that their economic interest lies not in working with the Saudis, but in working with Turkey. Not only that, if you notice in the Mediterranean, there has been a, a gas fine that has taken place. Many people believe that Gaza has to do with this gas fine. I don't think it has to do with it. Israel doesn't, is not worried that Gaza will interrupt any exploration in the gas. Where the gas becomes relevant is, for those who remember in 2019 in Libya, and you'll see the connection now, how the Ummah connects with each other, in Libya, a warlord in the east, Haftar, decided to mobilize to try to topple the internationally recognized government in Tripoli, the capital. When he got there, the reason that the Turks intervened is because when the Turks opened up a map, they found that their access to the Mediterranean was now being hampered by parties that were overtly anti-Turkey. You had Egypt, you had Israel, you had Syria, you had Cyprus, the island bang in the middle, you had Greece, and if Haftar had taken Libya, it would have meant a de facto chokehold on Turkey's interest and its ability to go into that area to explore the gas and extract that gas, which is why Erdogan responded, for those who are interested in researching it, Erdogan responded by announcing a unilateral maritime border with Libya that cut through Egypt and cut through the other countries to say we have a border with Libya and therefore we have access to every resource that's in this particular area. Erdogan, however, believed that that antagonistic approach brought a lot of problems. 2019, he lost the Istanbul mayoral election. He lost the Ankara mayoral election as a result of issues related to the Syrian refugees. The economic crisis was beginning to increase. Then he had the issue with the interest rates that resulted in the plummeting of the currency. Erdogan believes that the antagonism, while it's brought short-term gain, threatens long-term gains for Turkey. So Erdogan has proposed to the Israelis that joint gas pipeline, in that look, we, there's gas in the Mediterranean and we're all arguing over who has the right to explore that gas. Work with us and let's make a joint gas pipeline and let me and you together, Turkey and Israel, stand together with economic benefits. We already have good trade ties. There are many flights between Istanbul and Tel Aviv. We're already developing those economic ties. Turkey was the first country to recognize Israel when it kicked out the Palestinians from their homes. Let's establish those economic ties in order to try to prevent Turkey from being left out of these huge economic changes that are on the horizon that Biden has welcomed and says could even threaten China's expansion as an economic power. The reason all of that is relevant 
is because it explains why Erdogan, in the immediate aftermath of what happened after October 7th, his statement was unprecedentedly neutral. His statement was not to criticize the Israelis or even the Palestinians. It was, let's try to tone this down. Because from Erdogan's perspective, and bear in mind, I'm only speaking about this amorally, just, as, just describing his position. I'm not making a judgment on it. But Erdogan's reaction was, this could not have come at a worse time. Erdogan met Netanyahu for the first time since 2003, met him at the United Nations, showing how far they were going in restoring their ties. The ambassadors were restored to the capitals. Israel's president had gone to Ankara. Ishaq Herzog went to Ankara to meet with Erdogan. Netanyahu was supposed to go, but he was hospitalized for a heart problem, so he couldn't go. The point here being is that for Erdogan, this could not have come at a worse time. Israel was supposed to be the solution to many of the economic problems, but now the Palestinians have ruined it by launching this threat to Israel in terms of going out in the events of October 7th. And that's why we saw Erdogan in the beginning, because of the economic interest in the region and his economic needs, him adopting a very softer political stance. The reason Erdogan now, of course, is much more louder in attacking the Israelis and, 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 and essentially criticizing them is because he's deeply concerned that the Turks on the streets are seething, that they are angry, and that protests are emerging even in cities that weren't traditionally in favor of Palestine. We saw huge protests in Ankara as well. We saw in Istanbul, the Israelis felt that the, pr the pressure was so great from the Turkish people, they withdrew the Israeli ambassador. But we also saw Erdogan try to limit this in, in, the, in a political way. So, in a, in, 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 try to contain it politically. So for example, when, Israel, when Israeli citizens were going on social media saying we should boycott Turkish products, and Israeli companies were saying we're going to boycott Turkish products. The Turks were very quick to come out and say, no, there's no boycott from the Israelis of Turkish products. They panicked at the suggestion that perhaps the economic ties would be compromised. They preferred the political ties to be compromised, not the economic ties to be compromised. But the point here that, that's being made is since we're talking about economically, you see the direct impact of the economic necessities and the economic changes in the landscape and how it's implementing, impacting Erdogan's position. We move on to Mohammed bin Salman, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia. The Saudi Crown Prince, for all of the criticism towards him, particularly when people say that I criticism heavily. I was once on a plane, they said, you're the anti-MBS guy. I told them it's not the anti-MBS guy at all. I appreciate that there are genuine concerns that Saudi Arabia has. You'll remember that the Saudi Crown Prince, de facto terms, comes to power in 2015, but he becomes Crown Prince 2017. That period, 2014 to 2017, you'll remember, Ibrahim, oil prices just fell rock bottom. Oil prices collapsed and the Saudis were panicking because in their treasury, once in, in the space of one year, one-sixth of the Saudi treasury in the coffers was wiped out because they could no longer keep up the upkeep cost of Saudi Arabia because of the low oil prices. The Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman came to the correct conclusion that there needs to be diversification of the economy in order to reduce the dependency on oil and that manifestation of that desire for diversification is Vision 2030. Bin Salman has come to the conclusion that Vision 2030, the economic diversification, should be one that is rooted in creating cities that look like Miami, in his words. Creating cities that look more modern, more progressive, to reduce the influence of the hard interpretations of Islam in Saudi Arabia, and in his words, open up the kingdom to new economic opportunities and investment opportunities and the like. And that's why we've seen attempts to revamp the country's image. We saw invitations for Nicki Minaj. We saw invitations for Mariah Carey, for Pitbull, for David Guetta, all these concerts and raves in the desert. So Bin Salman can say to the world, Saudi Arabia is no longer this closed, 
hardcore Muslim state. We're now opening up. They experimented with the Bikini Beach in Jeddah uh, in 2019. They also uh, experimented with uh, reducing the hours that are spent in the education curriculum on Islam. It's gone down from 38 hours to about 24, 25 hours, with the other hours dedicated to what the Saudi Crown Prince calls critical thinking. The point here being is that Vision 2030 is about that economic diversification. But the Crown Prince has hit a problem. And the reason all this is relevant is because it links back to why Saudi Arabia's stance on Gaza is closer to Israel than it is to Palestine. The Saudi Crown Prince, if you imagine Ibrahim, politics in its essence is the science of human relations. The same way states, the same way human beings feel anger, sadness, grief, confusion, despair, is the same way that states feel it. The same way that you don't always have the full picture in front of you is the same way states feel, because ultimately it's a human endeavor. The Saudi Crown Prince comes to power in 2017. 2018, beginning of 2018, he does his US tour. He meets Mark Zuckerberg, he meets all everybody who's anybody in the US, and he showcases Vision 2030. He doesn't go to Beijing, doesn't go to Moscow, he goes to the Americans because that's what Vision 2030 is supposed to be about. But in 2018, Khashoggi is killed in the embassy. Whoever did it, the Saudis say they didn't do it, but regardless, Khashoggi is killed in the embassy, which means that companies, and I remember particularly amongst my corporate clients, they were less upset that Khashoggi was killed and more frustrated that it meant there were now reputational risks with dealing with Saudi Arabia. So they said, we, we're waiting for the, in the words of one client who said very callously, we're waiting for the Khashoggi cloud to pass before we go into Saudi Arabia and take advantage of these amazing opportunities or the like. In 2019, 2020, the Saudi Crown Prince is wrestling with this pariah image that has emerged. When he feels he's coming out of it, that he's finally, people are saying, you know, there are golden opportunities in Saudi, COVID hits. When COVID hits, it means nobody's investing anywhere. It's not about Saudi, they're not investing anywhere. So COVID hits and Vision 2030 is still not moving. It's still heavily reliant on oil. He's having to take larger dividends. From, not only that, the Houthis are firing missiles on oil facilities. They hit Abqaiq in 2019 and the Americans did not intervene to, to push back against the Houthis and against the Iranian influence or the like. So suddenly he has a security issue. They're, they're, nobody's investing because of COVID. When COVID starts to lift, another catastrophe comes. Biden wins the US elections, comes to power and says, that bin Salman is a pariah and I will not deal with him and I will only deal with King Salman himself. So imagine you're a company and everybody at that time is talking about possible sanctions on Saudi Arabia. So again, nobody, we're now 2021, we're five years or four years into Vision 2030 and still Vision 2030 is hampered by these events that are taking place. The companies are not rushing in. So much so that Saudi has to implement measures that include that anybody who does not have headquarters in Saudi Arabia will not be allowed to bid for government contracts. We saw in 2022 in particular, the border between UAE and Saudi, because many companies want to set up in UAE and then trade with Saudi. We saw that Saudi, three times in the year, unilaterally decided to impose spot checks on the border in a manner they they've never done before. And we saw for one week, for two weeks, long lines of trucks that were unable to cross the border, but nobody giving any reason why they were unable to cross the border. And it was a power play from Saudi Arabia to say that, look, you want to be in the UAE and invest in Saudi Arabia, I will show you the perils of doing that. You have to come and sit here in Saudi Arabia. But the coercion of companies to get them to come to Saudi Arabia showed, revealed the sense that Vision 2030 has not been developing. When eventually Biden comes and asks for the reset afterwards in July when he goes to Jeddah, Everybody thinks this is the reset, but Biden makes the number one mistake that bin Salman didn't want him to make. 
Biden in front of the cameras in Jeddah says, I told bin Salman, I brought up the issue of Khashoggi and quote, I let him know who I think did it. And the Saudis get so angry that they leak in the media that bin Salman responded and said, Shireen Abu Akla, the Al Jazeera journalist was killed by the Israeli snipers and you did nothing, where are your human rights? And the Saudi media went, wah, bin Salman told Biden and he shut him down. But the point here being is the meeting or the reset was such a failure that when the midterm elections came for the US, bin Salman cut production to ramp up the oil price in a bid to try to hurt the Democrats in the midterm elections. The point I'm making is that from 2017 to 2022, Vision 2030 is not on track. It hasn't progressed in the way that it has progressed. But then suddenly, bin Salman comes up with a, in quotation marks, genius idea. The, Qatari, the former Qatari Prime Minister has a famous interview in, in 2018, November 2018 with France 24. I encourage people who are listening to watch it. In it, he says something interesting. He says that, look, when the Arabs get close to the Israelis, it's not because they like the Israelis. It's because they see the Israelis as the key to Congress and the White House. Binson Man starts flirting with the idea of normalization on the basis that Israel can open Congress and the White House and convince the Americans to tone down on the antagonism and finally show appreciation for Vision 2030 and the like. As a result, we see the Saudis start to open their airspace to Israeli airlines. We see the Saudis force Bahrain into normalization of ties as a gift because bin Salman is concerned about the public backlash. We see the Saudi crown prince talk about now the idea of normalization in exchange for a Palestinian state. We see the normalized ties with who? Bahrain? With Israel. So the Saudis start talking about Bahrain. So he, he got Bahrain to, to normalize ties, oh, I see, I see. but for his own negotiations, he starts flirting with the idea of normalization. Benny Gantz confirmed leaks in Israel that Netanyahu had been twice to Saudi Arabia to visit with bin Salman and Benny Gantz responded and said, look, he went to Saudi Arabia, but those who leaked it were insensitive because it's causing problems for bin Salman and it's not something that we should leak. The point here being is that the Saudis were entertaining the prospect that given the disaster that Vision 2030 is not progressing and given the disaster that there is US antagonism, let's see if the Israelis can help us out. And bin Salman has three demands. Now we go to Gaza now. We're talking about the economic front. Bin Salman now has three demands. A NATO-style security agreement to push back against the Iranian proxies in Iraq to the north, the Houthis to the south, and Iran mainland in the east. For those who think that it's an exaggeration to fear Iran, I would refer them to a video of Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis, the head of the pro-Iran Iraqi militias in Iraq. He was killed alongside Qasem Soleimani in Trump's drone strike in 2019. Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis, there is a video where he's talking to university students. And they are telling, Ya Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis, Ya Mujahid, one day, inshallah, we will liberate Palestine and we'll be in Israel. And he says, no, 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 Israel is not the aim. Riyadh, Riyadh, we're going after Saudi first. The Saudis believe that the Iranians are posing an existential threat. So they want to... Still, even though... Still, even now. The reconciliation with Iran, for those who, who are reading it and think they are reconciling, the reconciliation with Iran is slow because bin Salman went to reconcile with the Iranians when he felt the Americans were abandoning him. But now the Americans are rushing in and saying that if you normalize with Israel, we'll give you the NATO-style security agreement. Bin Salman is taking a step back from his 
further in pursuing that reconciliation to say that, look, I was only talking to the Iranians because I wanted them to give me a breathing space so I could focus on my raves and concerts and Vision 2030. Now the Americans are seriously suggesting they'll protect me from Iran. Perhaps I don't need this reconciliation as much, which is why the Iranians have been quite frustrated in terms of how the reconciliation has been going forward. But the point here being is when we're talking about the economic front, Bin Salman was approaching, fast approaching normalization of ties with Israel. We talked about Netanyahu, how he mentioned it would be the greatest deal since the end of the Cold War. He gave the Fox News interview where he said, we're getting ever closer. Reuters reported an exclusive in which the Saudis had said to the Israelis that we are willing to discard the demand for a Palestinian state as long as you give us something that we can market as having made the lives of the Palestinians better. Just get the normalization done. The former Qatari prime minister alluded that a Gulf state was trying to take custodianship of the Al-Aqsa Mosque in order to hand over the lands around Al-Aqsa to the Israelis. Whether it's true or not is irrelevant. The point is that the whole trend before October 7th was that Saudi Arabia was going towards normalization of ties because bin Salman believes that he needs that normalization to push back against Iran. He needs that normalization to acquire nuclear technology because the Saudis legitimately say, if Iran gets a nuclear weapon, why can't I have a nuclear weapon? And the third point is, Bin Salman wants, through normalization with Israel, to get the Americans to publicly endorse Vision 2030, to come out and say this is a revolutionary economic program, the Americans companies should come. All these economic factors, all these economic factors, are the reason why when the Palestinians, when the events of October 7th happens, the Saudi crown prince is furious and frustrated that it came at the worst time. The Saudi crown prince in 2023, six years after struggling with Vision 2030, is on the verge of normalization with Israel. He's on the verge of getting the Americans to finally endorse Vision 2030. He's finally getting the likes of Shakira, the A-class performers, to come to Saudi Arabia and dance in front of the Saudis. He's finally getting Tyson Fury and Ngano to do boxing matches. LB, uh, Talk Sport Radio and BBC and the others and Bloomberg are now celebrating the opening up of Saudi Arabia and suddenly the Palestinians have forced a Muslim issue and now everybody's demanding Saudi Arabia to take a stance and now suddenly people are demanding that Saudi Arabia withdraw from normalization of ties with the Israelis. It came at the worst possible time because Bin Salman now is caught between a catch-22 economically. Are the Palestinians worth compromising my Vision 2030 and diversification program? Because if Bin Salman takes a stance in favor of the Palestinians, the Israelis can say, okay, fine. We're not, we're not going to talk to Biden. We're not going to talk to the Americans. We're going to leave you in this relationship with the pariah. And Bin Salman doesn't want to go to China. I know many people keep talking about China, but the Chinese are not stupid either. The Chinese know that Bin Salman is flirting with them because he has an issue in the marriage with the US. So he's threatening an affair, but he's not really keen on that affair either. And that's why I think that when Xi Jinping went to Riyadh, if you notice, look at the details. There were many memorandums of understandings that were signed, but not actual contracts in the industries that matter. There were energy contracts that were signed in terms of developing energy facilities, but that's normal, that's not a threatening US interest. There weren't contracts that were signed in areas where the US have traditionally dominated. Even the BRICS invitation, You'll notice that the UAE said we accept the BRICS invitation, but the Saudi said we'll revise the invitation. Thank you for the invite, but we'll see if we're ready to join or not. Because the Saudis see China as a way to try to strong arm the Americans. Vision 2030 is not supposed to look like Shanghai. It's supposed to look like Miami. Bin Salman doesn't want it to look like China. He wants to look like the US. But the point here being is that for the Saudi crown prince, when it comes to the economic side of things, Bin Salman now is caught between a choice. 
I was on the verge of finally getting the American companies to invest in Saudi with the support of Biden and with the support of the Israelis. Should I compromise that for Palestinians and for Gaza? Gaza will survive in the end. The Palestinians will be there. They might annex the north, but the Palestinians will still be there in the south. Let me hope that this situation goes away. And that's why we saw, because of this economic interest, we're talking Islamic finance guru, we're bringing out economic interest. Because of the economic interest, the Saudi crown prince is now playing a balancing game where he's lifted restrictions on dua for Palestine on the mosques, where now we're finally seeing them once again talk about Allahumma give victory to Palestine in a way they weren't doing over the past couple of years because of the restrictions and the like. We're seeing that the Saudi crown prince has re returned to using the word ihtilal in public statements. So for those who've been following Saudi, you'll note that Saudi statements on Israel, they've been removing the word occupation and colonizer. At one point, they referred to Israel as Israel, but put it between quotation marks, so that when people told the Mashaykh that Saudi is going towards normalization, the Mashaykh could reply and say, no, he used it in quotation marks, which means he's not recognizing the Israelis. Meanwhile, the Israelis said, because he used our name, this is an upgrade with regards to ties. But at the same time, the Saudi Crown Prince has been sending messages to the US and the Israelis that economic ties are still on the cards. In the Davos in the Desert Investment Forum last week, last week from this recording, the keynote speaker was Jared Kushner, the son-in-law of Donald Trump, who came and sat in the heart of Saudi Arabia, lambasted the Palestinians, criticized what they did, celebrated the Abraham Accords, and said that this is all a ploy to ruin normalization between Saudi and Israel, but they will not succeed. If you are the head of state of Saudi Arabia, and you are firmly standing with the Palestinians, would you allow such a high profile figure to come to the heart of a government event that you have financed and you intend to be showcased to the rest of the world to convince the world of what your identity is? Would you allow such a keynote speech to take place? Jared Kushner then went back to the US and he said that the enthusiasm of the Saudis for normalization is incredible, that they're still very enthused about normalization. The Saudi crown prince also, mobilize the Mashaykh in Saudi Arabia, and you're seeing it a lot now, those who are going to Saudi Arabia are also reporting it as well, that the lessons in the mosques, where the Imams give lessons, over the past couple of weeks have been consistent. It's about make dua for Gaza, but obey the ruler. Make dua for Gaza, but don't get involved in things that you do not know about. In the words of one Sheikh in Jama' Suleiman al-Rajhi in Riyadh, your opinion, Ibrahim Khan, is like that of a slug. Your analyses are burdensome, for Wali al-Amr. They're burdensome for the ruler and therefore you should keep quiet and trust that the ruler knows what he's doing in that on the night that Gaza, that Gaza has its internet cut off and the Israelis begin the ground invasion, on that very night Shakira performs in Riyadh, Wali al-Amr knows what he's doing when he brings Shakira to perform on that night. He knows what he's doing when the UAE, Oman and Kuwait cancel all festivals but Turkey al sheikh Ironically, the descendant of Sheikh Mohammed bin Abdul Wahab, Turkey Ali Sheikh, the head of the General Entertainment Authority, puts on a Facebook post on the Friday before Shakira is about to perform, and he says, I challenge you, and he's referring to people like us, I challenge you to find me one example of a football match that was canceled because of a political event. How can you ask me to cancel Shakira and cancel Ngano and Tyson Fury for the sake of the Palestinians or for the sake of the Gazans? And he doesn't even have the class to put a sentence, may Allah have mercy on the shuhada of those who have died in Gaza. But the point here being is, and as was stated in the Arab summit, and, and I'll wrap up here with Saudi Arabia in particular. In the Arab summit, five proposals were put forward by Tunisia, Algeria, Oman, and some of these other nations that included reversing normalization of ties for those states that have normalized, 
Sorry, who were the states? Tunisia, Algeria, Oman, Kuwait, and about four, other, four or five other states. Qatar? Qatar, one of them, of course. Qatar, Qatar, of course, has been phenomenal in the way it's been covering this issue and trying to, 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 to rally public opinion in favor of the Palestinians. And then we get to the point of the Arab summit. On the Arab summit, five proposals were, were put forward by countries such as Tunisia, Algeria, Qatar, Oman, Kuwait. Part of them included that they would close the airspace to Israeli airlines, they would encourage a boycott of Israel, those that normalize ties to Israel should reverse normalization or the like. The UAE and Saudi Arabia voted against those measures. They, vote, they decided not to adopt those particular measures. Leading an Israeli analyst on an Israeli channel yesterday from the time of this recording to come out and say that the Saudis and the UAE have ensured that there is no unified stance against the Israelis and they have helped us in this regard. Eddie Cohen who speaks in Arabic on Twitter, an Israeli commentator, said, Barakallahu fikum, O you Arab states, who failed to adopt these measures that would have pressured the Israelis or the like. So the point here being is that it's not necessarily that the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman loves the Israelis. It is that the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman believes that Iran poses an existential threat and that he badly needs to diversify his economy through Vision 2030. And do you think that's right? Do you think it, that there's he's right? In I think the concerns are legitimate. I think when the Saudis say that they're an existential threat from the Iranians who are pressing in and, and they've managed to form this pincer, and when the Saudis say that they urgently need to diversify the economy, the premise is resoundingly legitimate. The premise is resoundingly true. Bin Salman has identified the key problems that he urgently needs to address in order to ensure that Saudi Arabia does not collapse. Where the differences come about is not in that whether the Crown Prince should be doing this or not, but the manner in which the Crown Prince is trying to achieve that diversification and trying to achieve that security. The idea being that security should not be achieved by NATO-style agreement with the Americans, but perhaps should be achieved by in terms of developing the security infrastructure of the region, for example. Or that it should be achieved, for example, in that in Yemen actually trying to deliver the internationally recognized government back to power instead of being so concerned about its composition and fearing the Islamist influence, so much so that you end up being in a catch-22 where you don't want the Islamists to come back to power and that allows the Houthis to take advantage of that hesitation to cement themselves in northern Yemen or the like. It's about taking more harder measures in order to try to achieve your interests as opposed to trying to compromise them through the methodology of the raves and the concerts and the like. And that's why I think that for the Saudis, their position with regards to Gaza and, and, and Palestine, I think that there is an, a simplistic approach in that it suggests that bin Salman doesn't care. I think that the reason the Saudis haven't taken a stance has to do with these economic urgencies from the Saudi perspective. Again, you asked me the question to analyzing it politically. I'm not passing a moral judgment here. I'm not saying that it's the right thing to do, but rather I'm asserting the reason why the Saudis are far more keen in preserving talks with the Israelis to achieve urgent political and economic ends and why they believe and they've concluded that when all is said and done, the Gazans will still be alive, the Palestinians will still be alive, it will be a tragedy and a disaster, but they believe the Americans won't allow the Israelis to go so far as to completely wipe out all of the Palestinians and therefore the position of Saudi Arabia, like the position of Turkey and Erdo like Erdogan in Turkey, is to say, look, let's just pray that this goes away as quickly as possible so we can go back to business as usual. Makes sense. Um, and Sami, I wanted to um, now, so we, we now understand what the, the lie of the land is around uh, Israel uh, economically. What about um, the, the Israeli state itself? Uh, 
what are the uh, what are the econo key economic interests around there? And you know, from a Muslim perspective, it's very clear. We've been hearing about BDS boycott, divestment, sanctions. We've been hearing about how um, we mustn't let something like this happen again, like the second Nakba. We mustn't let this happen again, and we need a resolution to this. Uh, we look at South Africa and we look at how important sanctions were to that as well. I'd love to hear your analysis on uh, what are the key economic interests of Israel and, um, and what are, what are, um, how true is it that if we take certain steps, those economic interests will actually be materially affected and that will lead to you know, an outcome that we want. I think that one of the things that is worth noting is that if you remember Trump's deal of the century where he tried to essentially buy off the Palestinians in exchange for recognition of Israel, one of the things that the deal of the, deal of the century was centered on was economically integrating Israel into the region. It was the idea that if we can produce mutually economic, economically beneficial interests, then the ardor and the hardness of the opposition to Israel will eventually give way to a necessity to work with the Israelis to achieve common economic interests. And that's why I think that that idea, the spirit of deal of the century, was about economically incentivizing everybody into accepting Israel and using it as a hub, positioning it as a transit to Europe, between Europe and the Middle East or the like, to make it absolutely indispensable in the new economic landscape of the region. And, and also actually, Sammy, before you carry on, uh, the US has clearly got strong ties across the Middle East. It's got military bases in the Middle East as well. And it's clearly very supportive of Israel. Why is that? Why, why does the US particularly care about, let's say, Israel, when it's already got very strong ties with, let's say, Saudi Arabia or, I don't know, some of the other states? I think that a lot of that has to do with ideology, to be honest. I think that when you look at the current composition of the US government, you have Antony Blinken who's ideologically aligned with the Zionist project. Antony Blinken is firmly, you saw when he went to Tel Aviv, he said, I've come here as a Jew. He essentially, and Sisi lambasted him when Blinken went to Cairo. Sisi turned on the cameras and asked Blinken, what do you mean when you said you came here as a Jew? When have we in the Middle East ever persecuted the Jews in the way that the Europeans persecuted the Jews or the like? When you look at Jake Sullivan, John Kirby, all of these very senior politicians with a deep affinity for Israel are now in positions of power where they can leverage the power of the United States in favor of the Israelis. And when you look at Henry Kissinger in the 1970s, somebody also who came from that background that supported the Zionist project, when he was able to deploy that US power in that senior position in favor of the Israelis, which is why many Americans actually ask the question, what is the real reason why we are spending so many billions of dollars on Israel? Because the reason that debate is still taking place today is because many argue there's no actual tangible interest for the US to do so, a lot of it is descendants of those who promoted that project, who now find themselves in positions of power, who are able to leverage the resources of that state in favor of the Israelis. Something that is worth for Muslims to consider those who argue whether to be part of the system or not be part of the system or work with or deliver Muslim MPs or the like. We're seeing what the eventual outcome is in the way that the Zionist project was able to do in the US or the like. For the Christians in the US, a lot of it is to do with biblical evangelism. We saw, for example, the newly elected speaker of the Congress come out and say, I support the Israelis because my Bible tells me to support the Israelis. There are some political economic interests. Robert Kennedy, for example, who wants to run for president, actually said that Israel is our outpost in the heart of the Middle East. It's our haven through which we are able to push back against 
antagonistic interests that come from the Muslim world and that come from the Middle East and it's our outpost that we are able to essentially uphold in Israel. But I think that when it comes to the idea of why is it that the US supports the Israelis, like it's a mixture of these three, but primarily it's ideological. Primarily it's those advisors in the US who have such deep sympathies because they came from families who were persecuted by the Europeans and the pogroms or the like. They believe that Israel has to survive because of the dark and brutal history that the Europeans inflicted on them and that's supposed to be their haven. And sorry, you were saying about Israel and the economic interest. I think that the deal of the century, the heart of it was to put Israel as economically indispensable in the region and Biden has continued in the same vein. When we talked about the, the Middle East corridor announced at the G20, the, the whole purpose of that corridor is to put Israel at the center. Before Erdogan wanted to position Turkey as the center, that it would go through Bulgaria, through Turkey and then continue on into Asia. The Americans have successfully managed to impose Israel on the region in a manner in which all economic interest, because the US remains the economic power, all economic interest has to go through Israel. So anybody who wants to develop a Middle East route has to go through Israel. The challenge that they are having at the moment is should it go from Israel to Turkey or should it go Israel to Jordan and then towards Saudi Arabia or like. But the very essence of it is that if you can create economic interest, mutually beneficial economic interest between Israel and the nations, that will result in people saying the Palestinian cause, we're all living now and all economic benefiting, there's no point in restoring the lands and the like. And that's why I think that for these projects that Jared Kushner is trying to push, Jared Kushner whose company also invests Saudi funds, the reports now they're also going in Israeli companies, trying to boost that economic integration between the Israelis and between the Arab states. The UAE is going fully all in, allowing the Israeli companies to use UAE as a hub through which it can then connect with all the other countries itself. If you can tie the economic benefits of Israel within the region, then it makes, as we're already seeing with Turkey, hesitant to go against Israel because of economic interests. The Saudi crown prince hesitant to go against Israel for economic interests. You can entrench those through those economic ties. And this is where the idea of boycotts and, and these other issues work. In that, for example, in Turkey, one of the issues that the Israelis are having now is that they have a lot of investments in Turkey and a lot of investments even with those who are members of Erdogan's party itself. But the issue is that Turks are now boycotting companies that are seen to be supporting the Israelis. We saw in Jordan, for example, Starbucks and McDonald's have been empty for the past three weeks. People taking it upon themselves to boycott and, 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 and essentially try to send a message. I think that at the moment it's not having as great an impact as perhaps people would love to, but that a lot of that has to do with a lack of direction as to how to effectively boycott, what products to boycott, what companies to boycott. And then the second challenge in that if you boycott, what's the alternative? If I can't go to Starbucks, where can I go? If I can't go to McDonald's, where can I go? And I know it sounds silly when you yeah. put it in that way, but, no, I get it. but to remember who you're talking to, you're talking to a, a, an ordinary citizen, and no disrespect, I'm not saying it in a disrespectful way, somebody who perhaps is working in his day-to-day -day job from nine to five, doesn't necessarily know too much about the intricate dynamics, but his heart or her heart is so deeply aggrieved, they want to do something, but they're not sure where to go. And this is where sometimes people like where Islamic finance guru has done an excellent job in trying to educate the, the ordinary Muslims about where to put their money, where to finance and invest. People are now reading your guides in terms of where to put the money and they're believing you blindly because they say you guys know, whereas we, and I'm one of them. I read the guides and I say, okay, they've said this is okay, go and do it. Sammy, why are you doing it? Because Islamic finance guru told me to do it. The reason why I'm using that as an example is because one of the reasons why people say boycott, at least at the moment, is not having the impact it should have is the lack, because of the lack of guidance and clarity as to what we should boycott. And that's why I think it's very interesting that I was speaking at a hackathon last week 
just as to tell them, come on guys, keep going. And you find a lot of them are developing apps where you can go the app, quickly scan the barcode, it will tell you if the, where this product is coming from. So you can say, no, I don't want to buy it. And, and I think there are alternatives emerging. One of the things that Turkey has done really well, Erdogan in particular, is the way that he's been driving Turkish companies to go and compete abroad. So even here in the UK, when you're going into a supermarket, you'll have a product, you'll see Bodrum, you'll see Sofia, you'll see all these other different Turkish products that are now readily available, easy available in supermarkets that provide you with the alternatives. Boycotts do work. Some people will say you've just said that boycotts is not the impact that it has, but they do work and I explain why they work. You've seen the backlash to the BDS movement in Western capitals. The reason there's a backlash is because if Israel believes that the boycotts are not working, they certainly believe that if it continues on its trajectory, it has the potential to cause catastrophic damage. It has the potential to cause very serious damage. It has the potential to hurt the economic ties, which is why there was a necessity for the Israeli lobby to get bills into parliament and into Congress to ban the BDS movement. If it didn't have an impact, Israel wouldn't mobilize in that way. And that's why I think now to answer your question directly, I think that when it comes to boycott, I think right now, and what some people are trying to fill that gap now is, it's the direction. Many people want to boycott to show solidarity in the same way that the, the UK and US encourage people to boycott Russian products and put sanctions on Russia over Ukraine to show solidarity for Ukraine. The exact same is applying here where people want to show solidarity for Palestine to boycott Israeli products. And I think now what we're seeing is belatedly people are coming out and trying to fill that gap to say this is the guidance as to how you could do it. And I think the Israelis are deeply concerned with that. And what they're concerned with is the potential that the shifting in public opinion and the anger on the streets can be channeled and manifest into tangible gains or tangible uh, consequences. And those tangible consequences will be boycotts. And I think, for example, for me, I speak only for myself, for example, sometimes we'll sit as a family and people will say, okay, look, check that product first, where it's coming from, check that product first. But is there a one-stop shop where you can go to and find out I think that's yet to exist at this moment in time, and I think that's something that many people are trying to fill. So um, on this, Sami, so I've been I've been thinking about this as well a fair bit, and um, my instinct is that boycotting. I mean, every little helps. So I, I think we should we should definitely explore that. But I think if you actually study the composition of the Israeli economy, um, the big bulk of it is actually the tech sector, uh, and then there's actually a lot of um, de you know defense and military uh, companies as well. Um, and I think a lot of the investment inflows are coming from um, America, um, but, but also all over the world, but not really from the Muslim countries, as far as I can tell. Um, so if we kind of roll it back to, um, you know, logically, how does BDS actually work in a way that's impactful? I'd say that the boycott aspect, we should do whatever we like, you know, as, as yeah. much as we can, because I think some of these um, boycotting strategies are a little bit more tangential because people are saying, look, you should uh, boycott Pepsi-Cola or you know, Coca-Cola because they have one of their subsidiaries has a base in the occupied territories and therefore we're going to punish all of them. So for example, Innocent Drinks is owned by Coca-Cola, which has some exposure to a factory in one of its subsidiaries that does that, which you know, I, I can kind of understand that there's some kind of tangential link, but I suspect that the reality is that most of that harm is A, probably not going to be that material for Coca-Cola, and B, I'm not sure that it will necessarily percolate down to actual harm uh, within the Israelis. 
And then that's not to say you know one shouldn't do it. I yeah. mean, every little helps. But then I think the second aspect of this is the tech sector, because if you actually think about it, the Israeli government makes its money through um, inflows from uh, the USA and lots of them, but also uh, tax receipts. And who are then the large companies in Israel who actually give them these tax receipts? I think a big chunk of them are the tech sector. And I think companies, like, and I think this is where Muslims can be quite strategic, like Fiverr is full of uh, talent. Uh, primarily the good talent is sat in Bangladesh, India, Pakistan, uh, and Malaysia, Indonesia. And these are all Muslim countries. And uh, Fiverr is an Israeli company. And it's actually been pretty public about its support for what's been happening as well. And so that's like an obvious um, you know, kind of place where I think Muslims can start thinking about things. And there's a number of other tech companies as well that I think uh, it's worth Muslims looking into. And I think there's, uh, I think it's called Witness, Boycott Witness News, something like that is, is the, uh, it's, a, it's a website that I think has been doing what you've said, which mm -hmm. is trying to compile lots of things. Um, so I think that's really interesting. And then, uh, so, and, and so that's on the boycott side. And then I think on the divestment side, uh, it's also uh, because we Muslims do inevitably have some money in uh, companies like, let's say, Coca-Cola or Pepsi or um, I don't know, so even even some defense manufacturers sometimes, which is you know particularly bad. Um, and we should, I think, look to divest as much as we can. But I actually don't think again that the Muslim pound is going to make too much of a material difference on the divestment because the reality is the big money in the Muslim world is with the sovereign wealth funds. And I don't think they're going to be shifting. I mean, they're not even Sharia compliant, many of them, and they're not going to be shifting on this basis in my view. And so uh, if, if that is the case, and, and, and in any case, the things that they're going to be shifting on, uh, these companies are not necessarily directly you know, attached to Israel. They're kind of subsidiaries thereof are doing stuff. So again, I think on the divestment side, um, it, it, it doesn't seem to me to be a material way where we can have much of an impact. Where I think, um, where I think my, you know, primitive thought process so far is that sanctions has to be the place, uh, and that's why you know the Russia was very upset when the European Union, the U.S. Uh, sanctioned them. And I feel like you know, if you look at South Africa, as soon as the USA and the UK started sanctioning South Africa, was that was the beginning of the end. And I feel like with Israel, uh, if Israel is committing things that are in contravention of international law, then sanctions are a necessary you know, extension of that. Um, and I think that's where you know, it kind of goes down, back down to a political point then, because you need to influence politicians to be able to implement sanctions. But I feel like that's because what happens with sanctions is you you actually turn off the the taps that uh, Muslims don't have their hands on anyway, which is the you know the various non-Muslim taps mm. that are currently investing in and, and supporting uh, the Israeli economy. Um, so yeah, I'd love love to hear your thoughts on that. I think that that's a, that's a very valid point, and I think that I'll take it one step further in terms of building on your analysis. You, you've highlighted that sanctions is the way forward. And I would go further and say, why did the UK and US go from supporting the apartheid regime to sanctioning the apartheid regime in South Africa? And that's because there was a very clear shift in global public opinion. 
there was a very clear shift in the way people started talking about South Africa. Very clear shift in the way the discourse was shifting, very similar to how it's shifting today with regards to Palestine. Very similar to how it's shifting in the way people are now talking about Israel, where people are talking about the atrocities that it's committing. CNN reported that Biden told the Israelis that the constant bombardment of the videos on social media of the atrocities being committed in Gaza is causing such a spike in public pressure and public opinion in the US itself that you may no longer have months, you may only have a matter of weeks before we have to change our position because the position of not supporting a ceasefire is becoming increasingly untenable. I do think that when it comes to boycott, and this is why I highlighted the second strand as well about providing the alternatives, is because one of the things that I find quite interesting is, particularly dealing with corporate clients, is that a lot of the cash flow and finances that they look for, they actually go to the Middle East to try to find it. They go towards the Arabs and the Muslim world to try to find the finances necessary in order for them to try to expand their operations and try to improve. And that's where I think that even if the Muslim nations and the sovereign wealth funds, as you mentioned, even if they are not divesting, the reason they are not divesting at this moment is because they're not feeling the pressure. And I think part of exerting that pressure is for ordinary people in the same way that they are shouting loudly on social media and causing those change in the polls where Biden is now behind in six different states. It's also about domestically as well trying to push back. One of the reasons that I mentioned that Erdogan, for example, changing his rhetoric or the Mashaykh in Saudi Arabia talking about obeying the ruler or the like, those kind of measures are not directed at Israel or the US. They're directed at public opinion, which reflects a concern that public opinion is reaching levels where if they are left unchecked, they will manifest themselves in ways that will cause issues and problems for wider policy and in particular policy with regards to relations with the Western world and relations with regards to Israel. To put it bluntly, they are concerned that public opinion will force a scenario where it will become untenable not to divest from Israel or not to divest from these various different companies that are operating with the Israelis. And that's why I think that sometimes while it's true that the current analysis of the impact of boycott, as you very aptly stated, the Muslim pound may not be as effective as perhaps that we think it might be. I also equally think that the suggestion that there is a scenario that can emerge that will make these policymakers concerned mm. is enough of an encouragement to suggest that perhaps the analysis that we have is not wrong, but perhaps the scenario that we the best scenario that we hope for is certainly a possibility and therefore boycotting and these measures are worth doing because it might open the door that we cannot see at the moment that will lead to that change in the policy making or the like. The Arabs like to say that politics is the science of the possibilities. It's the, it's the science of opportunities. There's no such thing as an ideal scenario. There's only a series of opportunities in front of you and you decide whether to take those opportunities or not. Some people call it pragmatism. Other people talk about it, the reality. I always strike the comparison that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran, when you look at the way that he sends the prophets to to different peoples, the conclusions are all different. You read Surah Hud, for example, Allah gives you the example of all prophets that he destroyed their people. But then he gives you examples of Ibrahim salam, where he blessed his people. He gives the example of Yusuf salam, who blessed and Allah blesses his people. Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Allah blessed his people and carried the religion to the four corners of the earth. Every prophet has a different outcome and you even have prophets who say very similar to some Muslims like Lut salam, in Surah Hud, if only I had power over you or a powerful ally to resist you. Lot, the Prophet is saying, he's lamenting. They've come to oppress him and he's saying, I don't have power to resist them. But Allah in the following ayah says, I have the power to resist them. 
and I've decided that in the morning they're going to be destroyed. And I think a lot of it is in this regard, in that where Lord felt in that moment that all was done for, like he was about to be humiliated, Allah brought a light from where he was not expecting, from where Lord was not expecting. And I think that when it comes to boycott, the reality is that you're analyzing it correctly, in my opinion. In that, in that the impact may be limited in terms of what we do, yes. But the reason why I mentioned the idea of the alternatives and you alluded to it as well is, is because it might, in our generation at least, maybe we won't see the full fruits of it. It might encourage a generation in the same way that you set up Islamic Finance Guru to fill a gap to help us to practically understand how to use our finances in a way I can't remember before you guys emerging seeing something similar. But the point is that you, you get a generation that will say, okay, Ibrahim Khan said in a podcast sitting with Sami Hamdi that the Muslim pound is not valuable enough. Part of the reason why is we don't have enough Muslim businesses and Muslim clouds that can act as alternatives and effectively compete with these other global brands. What can I do in order to try to advance that? And the reason why I mention that is, look at Turkey, for example. The Bayraktar drone that the Turks have indigenously built in Turkey itself now rivals a lot of the world's top weaponry. It is the weapon of choice now in many different battlefields, so much so that the UK government is trying to collaborate with the Turks to obtain the technology in terms of how to develop that. A Muslim country is now developing independent capabilities. You look at Turkish construction companies, and for example, my maternal side, I'm from Algeria, a lot of the building blocks were being built by Chinese, being built by French companies. The Turks are outmuscling them in the market. They're coming in and they're dominating. When you look at, for example, Macron, the French president, when he, the reason he has a problem with Turkey is not because he believes Turkey is stronger than France. It's because in the areas of French influence in Africa, people are buying Turkish products over French products, not because they like the Turks better than the French, but because the Turkish quality of the products is just as good as the French. In other words, they're competing economically. You're looking at these Turkish companies that are emerging and now competing at a global stage because the Turks identified the hole that we are identifying, which is where are the Muslim companies that can compete with, 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 with these kind of companies or the like. So I agree with your analysis of the boycott, but I would also argue that this analysis is based on the fact that we are sort of in the beginning of the push. We're sort of, for example, in the beginning, it may be that in our lifetimes, the purpose of our generation is to set that pedestal for the next generation to build on it. I always argue, and I, and I say it sometimes to the Muslims, they get upset when I say it. But I say, look, the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, by the time he died, his influence only actually spanned Mecca and Medina and some of the territories around it. These areas, politically speaking, were considered not worthy of invading by the Romans and the Persians. The Romans only turned up near Tabuk when the Prophet ﷺ had emerged and they said, wait, something is happening here that we might need to check. But before that, they did not believe it was Cyrus of Persia. When the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ sent, the, sent his messenger, sent his envoy to call him to Islam, Cyrus replied and says, you come out the desert smelling like rats to tell Persia where it should bow its head. As in, who are you to come? But the Prophet ﷺ died before seeing Islam in the folk in Argentina and these other places. But he didn't need to see it because the outcome belongs to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, not to us. Mm -hmm. The striving is what belongs to us. It's for us to identify, for you to say to me, Sammy, I like what you said about the boycott, but I've identified one, two, three problems. So we say, okay, 
We won't focus on the ultimate goal because clearly it's out of our reach at the moment. But there are battles in front of us that we can plug. You've decided to do it via Islamic Finance Guru. I decided to do it via International Interest. Other brothers are trying to do it, or the sisters are trying to do it through various different organizations. And we're trying to build it. The reason why I use Turkey as an example is to demonstrate that my words are not theory. The Turks are doing it. They are developing an independent capability for their companies to competitively compete objectively with global companies in a way that we haven't seen in many parts of the Muslim world for many, many years. If Turkey is doing it, it's showing that we can do it. So if today the Muslim pound is not of value and people want to do and boycott, and maybe it might have an impact, maybe in Jordan it's having some of an impact or alike. We're addressing a problem here in terms of lack of alternatives in the Muslim pound. How can we amplify that? And I look forward to your next guide on Islamic Finance Guru, which helps to identify where I should put my money to help to advance that, inshallah. No, barakallah. And Sami, I, I wanted to, before we wrap up, I'd love to get your views on the here and the now in the UK. Uh, because, you know, you, we, which mean, in, in many ways, we're talking about a similar phenomenon, right? Where uh, I'm saying, look, in practical reality, we may not necessarily have an impact on the boycotting side, but we should do it, right? Regardless. Uh, and it might be the same to say, you know, in the UK polit political scene, it seems to me that neither the Conservative Party nor the Labour Party particularly care and, and are, are happy to have made their bed uh, by giving up the Muslim vote. And I don't know how, how much you agree with that. Um, with, uh, with the way that they've approached this, uh, this particular conflict. And, uh, and I think that, uh, but regardless, Muslims should continue to be politically active and figure out a way. The question is what that way should be. I think that there is a big difference between the capabilities of the Muslims here and in the US. And I'll, and I'll say what I mean. In the US, because of their electoral system and the electoral college, it means that 1% Muslim population can decide the difference in Michigan between the Democrats and the Republicans. And when you look at the polls in the US now, Biden is behind in six states, four of them swing states, four, three of them where Muslims are the deciding vote. That's why Kamala Harris came out, the vice president of the US, and said we're introducing a counter-Islamophobia program in order to try to appease the Muslims because we are concerned that they might punish us in Michigan because the Muslims, there is a Twitter account, there's a sister called Hind Mekki, she made a very good point on Twitter where she said, based in the US, she said uh, that we survived four years of Trump, but 10,000 Palestinians did not survive four years of Biden. So we can survive the worst case scenario, but we, can't, we, we will not allow Biden to continue as he is. And now we're seeing a campaign start in the US to convince the Muslims to say, look, yes, Trump might be bad, but we have, to, we have to demand the respect of Biden, we have to punish Biden. And there might be a third scenario that might rescue them, where the Democrats get so concerned that they decide to change the candidate. Instead of Biden, let's put another Democrat, at which point the Muslims might be able to legitimately go and vote Democrat and keep Trump out. The point is that because of the electoral college system, Muslims do have the ability to really punish the Democrats. And I think that's why there was an interesting email that got sent out by the Democrats four days ago, where they said Trump wants to bring back the Muslim ban, we stand against it as Democrats because they're concerned that the Muslim vote might actually punish them. In the UK, it's a bit different. And I think the UK, I think we should shift the goalpost in terms of what we want to achieve. From my perspective as a political analyst, I'll speak first as a political analyst before I speak as a Muslim. As a political analyst, I'd be very interested to see the extent of Muslim power in their ability to produce independent candidates. I would be very interested to see in Birmingham, Manchester and London, areas where Muslims are particularly concentrated, I would be interested to see the extent of their abilities to be able to really upend a traditional status quo in areas where Muslims have the power to do so. By that, what I mean is 
Let's say, for example, Muslims in Ilford, for example, decided to put up a Muslim candidate or to put up an independent candidate, any candidate, it doesn't have to be Muslim. And they decided to go and vote for that independent candidate. As a political analyst, I'd be fascinated to see the numbers that that independent candidate can achieve. Why? Because as the Chinese strategists used to say, know, know yourself, know your enemy, know you win all battles. At this moment, I feel the Muslim community, and you might disagree with me, I feel we're not aware of the extent of our power. We're not aware of where we're at at the moment. We have Muslim representatives, yes. We have some Muslim businesses, yes. But we've never really deployed that power in a concerted, organized way where we can say, okay, today in 2023, we are at this stage in terms of our power and therefore to reinforce it, we need to do this, this and that. I'd be interested to see in the next elections that take place here in the UK, less of a focus on punishing Labour and Conservatives, but coming together as a Muslim community and including those sympathizers who are non-Muslims who are livid at the Labour and Conservative support for genocide and ethnic cleansing, so that when we meet, inshallah, and I hope that you have me on again, when we meet, inshallah, next year and we have the numbers of what happened, we can look at those numbers and we will either say, okay, this is the extent of our power, we were 1,000 votes short in Ilford, for example, but that's huge. That means that viably, we can topple Labour at the next election, get an independent MP. He doesn't have to be opposed to Labour. He can work with them in the parliament, but we can show that we can force our voice on that. I think that at this particular stage, as with any army that goes to battle, I think we need to determine the strength of the army that we have at the moment. What is it that we can realistically achieve? I think there's a lot of you know, speculation but I think the focus of the election, I know, I know it sounds weird, I think the focus of the current elections is, you were saying that there's not much we can do here, and perhaps I'm inclined to agree. I think Starmer will win a landslide election against the Tories, I think the, because the primary focus will be the economy. I don't think that we have the ability to punish the Labour Party in the way that the US Muslims have the ability to punish the Democrats, but we do have the- Therein is the opportunity. Therein is the, we, we do have the ability- Because it's a, it's a foregone conclusion. So let's give it a shot. Yeah. It's one of those that, listen, at the end of the day, we've reconciled the worst case scenario in which a party, the leader that supported genocide and ethnic cleansing is going to come into power. And we, it's, like, let's also be frank, they're gonna be better than the Tories. They will be better than the Tories. Apart from on this issue, you know, it's pretty much the same, <laughs> but they'll be better than the Tories. But it's a good chance for us, I think, as Muslim communities, in areas where we can make a difference, for the Muslim communities to come together and say, you know what, Labour are going to win anyway. But if, if, hypothetically, if we all decided to go for an independent candidate, let's see what happens. How many votes could we get behind the independent? And, and for somebody as a political analyst, and, and, and I, I want to word this properly, like, I, I love my job, like, I enjoy, you know, analyzing politics and the like. I would be so excited and eager to see the extent of the power of the Muslim vote through their ability to organize, to put independent candidates, even if the independent candidate loses, if an MP gets 20,000 votes and that independent gets 18,000 votes, as a political analyst, that means that the next election you can topple that MP because you only need 3,000 votes to topple that MP. If in Ilford, West Streeting gets, for example, I mentioned Ilford because there was a protest in front of West Streeting. Yeah, yeah. If in Ilford, West Streeting gets 20,000 votes, and the independent candidate, through the mobilization of the local community, Muslims and non-Muslims to punish the Labour Party, managed to topple West Streeting, who's touted to one day even become the leader of the Labour Party. If they get 19,000 votes and West Streeting gets 20,000 votes, at that point, Ibrahim, you'll agree with me, that we will say, okay, 19,000 votes, that means 1,000 didn't have enough hope, but now that they've seen 19,000, next election they will vote 
And not only that, but where streeting will actually fall in line. Oh, that, the Labour will they receive point. the message. One of the things that's worth interesting, and I think... Because it, and this is the thing that frustrates me, because I feel like people say, oh, no, no, brother, look, we're going to let the Tories in. The, the reality is that if, you know, you're not going to physically, you're not going to actually show that you're willing to go the other direction and do it, and do it successfully, they won't take you seriously. Not only that, imagine the reaction of the Muslim MPs in Labour who took three weeks to come out to call for a ceasefire, like Osada Khan three weeks. When they see that the Muslim community is now mobilizing behind independent candidates to test their power, because they will hear the message that the Muslim, Muslim communities are not mobilizing to actually topple Labour because they don't believe they can. They are mobilizing to test their power because now they're seriously contemplating how to manifest that power in a way that benefits their interests. Suddenly you will find that they will have a debate between themselves as to the extent to which they can continue to defy their local communities in favor of towing that party line. You send a message. And I think that, I know, I know sometimes people say that this is not a tangible thing. Let me put it to you bluntly, Ibrahim. The reason Blinken has gone from refusing to call to a ceasefire to calling for a humanitarian pause is not because he's woken up and thought, I want to be more merciful. It's because public opinion has forced a change in public, uh, the social media has forced a change in public opinion to the extent that they can no longer maintain their position. When Blinken went to Netanyahu, Axios reports, the Israeli paper, that Blinken said to Netanyahu, the public pressure is getting, is getting louder and louder. And at this rate, our position of supporting you may become untenable. Blinken said, quote, it's in the article, help us to help you. Help us make ethnic cleansing look humanitarian. Help us with a PR strategy to make the ethnic cleansing look like it's a mercy. Let's do a four hour block so that the Palestinians can leave their homes and we can say they're leaving under Israeli protection through humanitarian corridors. The reason he did that is because the ordinary individual on social media kept propagating the, or kept pushing the videos of the atrocities in Gaza to the, such an extent that it altered the algorithm, which forced it to reach new audiences who were so horrified that they looked at each other and went, oh, Dave, have you seen what they're doing in Gaza? Oh, it's, it's, they're killing babies. Like, and, and that's making an impact. They're concerned. When Ron DeSantis, the Republican candidate, goes to a supermarket to say to them that, guys, Israel has a right to self-defense, and white Americans turn around and say, I don't believe you because I've seen what they're doing in Gaza. That shows you the impact that they've had. The point here is this. You don't have the power to get Blinken to call a ceasefire today, but you have the power to pressure him, to force him to change his position. And then if you keep up that pressure, he will be forced into a ceasefire. So when you send a message to the Labour Party through mobilizing in an attempt to topple their MPs, to put independent candidates who will probably go and work with Labour anyway. There's yeah. no problem. But when you show that you're ready to mobilize, to test your power, to test the possible alternative, their reaction will be to see how far, how powerful is this block? And I think even if they win in every place where we put an independent candidate, they will look at the numbers. And I promise you, if 19,000 in Ilford vote for independent candidate and West Streeting gets 20,000, the Labour will not say few West Streeting won. They will say 19,000 voted today. And that's 19,000 of people minus the people who didn't have enough faith in the project. But now those who sat at home and saw the 19,000, they will believe, ah, if I had voted, we could have toppled West Streeting, which means in the next election, we have to go to these Muslims and appease them. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, they might actually topple us. I think, and I say this with, with a bit of excitement, I say this, and, 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 and inshallah people watch this, we have nothing to lose. Starmer mm -hmm. will win the election. 
But wouldn't it be incredible for us to be able to empirically measure the extent of our power and influence in these elections in areas where we can topple? And I think, and I said this yesterday as well at a meeting with some of the mosques as well, and I said, if you can mobilize and actually together, I'd be very interested to see those numbers. And I think, I think we could cause quite a few surprises and upsets and we could actually force the Labour Party to revise, even if it never calls for a ceasefire, it will come in. And, and conscious of the time, Sami, I wanted to ask you a final question, which is, what if this means that you're standing against a Muslim Labour MP in, in a safe Muslim constituency seat? I think that the whole, I think one of the things is, and, I, and, I, and, I'll, and, I'll, and I'll talk this in two strands. The first thing is, I think it's important to note that having Muslim representation, even if they are flawed within parliament and the like, is beneficial insofar as it reflects a trajectory that shows a greater opening up of opportunities for Muslims. Even if they are not perfect, it's clear the trajectory is going that way. And the way I measure it is, look at how the far right react to the presence of Muslim MPs. You can see that they're concerned about the trajectory. So I think Muslims should always put it in this framework. I think that when it comes to standing against a Muslim MP, if that Muslim MP was too scared to call for a ceasefire, that Muslim MP is not worthy to represent us. So therefore we need to hold that MP to account by backing that independent candidate and actually going. Because it will force that Muslim MP, if he wins, because he represent the Labour Party, if he wins, he will know that they tried to mount a challenge in his hometown to topple him. That con the conclusion of that MP will not be to hell with the Muslim vote. The conclusion will be, go to the Labour Party and say, guys, I backed you, but really, I I'm under fire here. You need to give me something to help to, to, to appease them. Mm. Even in that scenario, we benefit, we gain in it. Mm. So I think when people are saying, no, we don't want to go against the Muslim MP, to be honest, when push came to shove and we needed them, they weren't there. Let's, let's bring the independent MP, let's push it forward. The best thing that can happen is we deliver somebody who will represent our interests. And if he fails, some of them we scare the others. Yeah, some of them were there and we should, we should respect that. Some those who did, yeah. we can back them. Like those who did, there's no point challenging them, them there. But I think that I think there are some brothers now who, or, and sisters who are trying to do so, identify the places where the Muslim vote can make a difference. I think if we can push those efforts, it would be good. But I think at this stage, I think that what we're learning as an ummah, and I'll finish on this point, what we're learning as an ummah and what I've been trying to say to people in every opportunity I get is that the policymakers are under pressure, not because of international dynamics, but because public opinion is roaring, it's raging. The ordinary Muslim who thought they were insignificant is shouting loud on social media. It is the ordinary Muslim and those who are non-Muslims who are sympathized Palestinian cause, those who are sharing on social media, they're the reason that the Americans are buckling and why Biden, when he proposed a humanitarian pause, Netanyahu resisted it for a week because Netanyahu was concerned that Biden was trying to trick him into a ceasefire, that Biden, because he's worried about public opinion, is trying to trick him and lure him into the beginnings of a ceasefire. The cracks are emerging. Allah says in the Quran, sometimes you think their hearts are united, but قُلُوبُهُمْ shatta. You know, their hearts are divided. We're seeing that, and that's being exacerbated by public opinion. I think the Ummah, I call this period now the Great Awakening. We ask Allah to accept the shuhada of Gaza, and, and, and we ask Allah to have mercy on what's happening in Palestine, but it's undeniable there is a Great Awakening that is taking place now in the consciousness. And not only that, the Ummah is starting to believe that, wait a minute, I actually do have power. I thought I didn't, but I do. I'm making these policymakers buckle. I think now that this attitude is emerging, the Ummah doesn't know yet tangibly the extent of its power. Let's use these elections 
to identify the extent of that power so that we know how high or how low it is and so we know how to reinforce it. And I think in this mood where the winds have changed, I think more people are willing to mobilize because now they believe in this power and I'll finish on this point. The, the Hadith Qudasi, it is said that when you take one step towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah takes 10. We took one step in doing what we could to raise the Palestinian voices. Allah shifted global public opinion to the extent that there's an article in The Hill written by a pro-Zionist writer, prominent pro-Zionist writer, who writes and says, when all is done in Gaza, what Netanyahu has done in the atrocities and the way it's been presented to the world, our allies may no longer come rushing to help us in the future because it's becoming untenable for them to stand yeah. with genocide. One of the chief diplomats here in the UK. Yeah, I, I think we won the political, we won the it. social media battle. He said that even Israel's friends are now starting to take distance from Israel. But that's because the Ummah mobilized. That's because the ordinary person mobilized. So I think now that we've seen that we have the potential, or not that we see potential, now that we've made policymakers buckle, Let's, let's now determine logically the extent of that power and I hope inshallah that people come out in force in the elections uh, at least to demonstrate that. Definitely. And I feel, um, uh, and we should end up, I think one, the other thing is we need to be willing to risk what hurts for us. Mm. Because if each of us, individuals, businesses, you know, politicians, are not willing to put all the ships in, uh, we're always going to lose this battle. Because Israel, the whole, uh, the whole ideology there, is that it's them and us. And that's why whenever this issue flares up, you have all of the people who are pro-Israel um, who put all their chips in, yeah. and that's how they do it. And I, and I think we need to kind of realize that and realize that if you're not risking what hurts, it's probably not enough. But also to build on that particular point, bear in mind, like, and I speak, I, I'm going to speak now from a personal perspective. I've been following you guys now for two years or two years and a half or whatever. If you told me four weeks ago that I'd be sitting with you here with Ibrahim Khan from Islamic Finance Guru, I'd have been like, how on earth are we going to sit together and meet and talk about something joint? You decided to take one step, Allah came 10 steps and amplified your voice. Yaqeen Institute took one step, Allah amplified their voice. And all of us individually, without liaising with each other, we took one step. Allah has brought us all our efforts in the close. In, close, close together. He brought us there. In other words, sometimes when people say, yeah, but I need to see the whole plan. Sometimes it's just about you take, making the effort. Agreed. And Allah will bring those parts in the way they've done for us today. Where, alhamdulillah, we're trying to talk and say to, that we can have a chance in the elections, tangible steps. And you will be liaising with other organizations and I'll be talking with other organizations together. The ummah starts moving together. Not because we intended for the ummah to move together. But because you sat at home and you said, I'm not going to sit here and do nothing. I'm going to go and do something and I'll leave the rest to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we're seeing the manifestation of that. And that's what I want to finish this on. And to say to, to people, even those who are watching, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will always look after the outcome. Always look after the outcome. The duty on us is to move, it, it, it's to move, to mobilize. Martin Luther King had a lovely saying where he said, if you can't run, walk, if you can't walk, crawl, but by God keep moving. And I think that's a very Islamic concept. Allah rewards an ummah that strives, not an ummah that does it. He rewards an ummah that strives. When Islam encourages you to strive to take action, Allah amplifies that. But if Islam only becomes habitual rituals, Allah will not put barakah in it. And that's why I think that you mobilizing, taking a step. Alhamdulillah, honestly, but Allah is the one who brought us together in terms of this particular podcast. We don't know where he's going to take our paths after that as well. But when I see it, and this is the point I want to make, when I, see, when I sit here with you, 
I feel that sometimes in those moments of despair that I have at home, for example, I say, you know what, it's worth it to keep going despite that feeling inside and to believe and trust in Allah that Allah will handle the outcome because I realize that sitting at home achieves nothing but moving even through the tears, even through the pain, even through the heartbreak, I'm seeing tangible results. I'm seeing Blinken buckle. I'm seeing Netanyahu buckle. I'm seeing Biden buckle. I'm seeing the panic over the swing states in Michigan. I'm seeing the American Muslims now say, let's talk about a genuine political strategy. I'm seeing you talk about a political strategy here in the UK. All of this makes me feel like Allahu Akbar. All I did was take one step and now I'm in the middle of it, like trying to promote these yeah, things. Yeah. And I think that's the beauty of it. And I think everyone who's watching this in particular, everyone, if they take one step, Allah will take 10. The possibilities that you can't see today will become a possibility only when you take that step. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, may he continue to bless our efforts and promote Ameen. it and to amplify Ameen. it, inshallah. Ameen. Jazakallah khair, uh, Sami. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've learned so much. No, I'm Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept it from you uh, and put barakah in it. Uh, Jazakallah khairan everyone. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.